And welcome again. I am Robert Doc Barham. This is the Robert Barham Show, and today we have another wonderful guest. My longtime friend, Dr. Mark Goulston, is here, who many of you probably already know. And if you don't know, Doc, uh, Dr. Mark Goulston is the best-selling author of seven books, including the best-selling Just Listen, which became the top book on listening in the world. And it is one of the world's preeminent experts. That's Mark on empathic listening, and he speaks globally on that topic. He's also an executive coach, an advisor, and a confidant to CEOs from entrepreneurs to the Fortune 500. Mark helps them become more impactful by increasing their non-technical skills to match their technical skills. He has been a UCLA professor of psychiatry for more than 20 years, trained FBI and police hostage negotiators, and been one of the country's leading experts on suicide prevention, co-creating and moderating the multi-honored documentary, Stay Alive, an intimate conversation about suicide prevention. Mark hosts the podcast, My Wake Up Call, where he interviews influencers like Larry King, Ken Blanchard, Norman Lear, and many others about wake up calls that change their lives. If you wanna know more about Mark, you can find him on the web at markgoulston.com. Mark, how was that? Was that all right? Welcome. God, who is this guy? He's on, he, I hope half of that's true. This guy does everything. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you here today. Thanks for showing up, Mark. Um, you know, you and I talked a little bit about what we were going to talk about today, and it's something that we've had, I guess, in a sense, a little bit of an ongoing conversation. But today we want to talk about something that I think, given what's going on around the world, and especially here in the United States, because that's where we live, is stress and, uh, and, and actually anxiety and preventing PTSD from the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, uh, I hope I'm wrong. Um, you know, one of my books was PTSD for Dummies. And uh, I, I hope I'm wrong, but I think there's going to be a PTSD pandemic after this. The reason being, and I'll give you a little of my view of what trauma and PTSD is. Would that be okay? Yeah, please do, yeah. So trauma is something that we all go through, uh, but the trauma that usually causes PTSD is trauma that's unimaginable. I mean, you watch it in movies, uh, you see it in the news, and you think, and you think that's not going to happen to me, uh, or you think there but for the grace of God, uh, it could happen to me. But when it does happen to you, it what it does is it triggers what I call the horror, terror, fragile trifecta. And what that means is when it actually happens, it's beyond your imagination. It's horrific. But if you're duty bound, if you're a first responder, if you can't go to see your mom or dad when they're on a ventilator, if something's awful happening to your kid, um, uh, and so you don't have the luxury of feeling the horror and starting to process it, horror then goes into terror. And terror is uh, uh, just feeling almost like your survival is threatened. It's terrifying and terrorizing. And then that crosses over into feeling fragile. Uh, and, and at that point, 
if you still have to survive or you have to go to work, the next step after fragile is do not panic. Don't panic. Uh, and in order to, and then after that, one of the things you say to yourself in the don't panic phase is don't panic, focus. You gotta focus, don't panic. And in order to focus, you have to suppress your feelings. You have to push them down. And it's something that you, you do, it takes a lot of effort. And you can think of it as like in your computer, it's like working memory, the RAM in your computer. Your computer can maybe have 16 gigabytes of RAM. Uh, and then you push it down it, and it's exhausting. And you don't think you can keep doing it. But if you have no choice but to do it, it then goes into our unconscious as repressed memories, kind of like the hard disk of our mind. And what happens is, and you know that's happened when, geez, I'm able to function. Where did all that go? Oh, I guess I tuned it up. Really what happened is you repressed it into your unconscious, but it doesn't just stay there doing nothing. Uh, repressed feelings, memories create symptoms, and we don't connect them. So we start eating, we start drinking, we start uh, compulsive behaviors to give us immediate release and relief, and we don't necessarily connect those, uh, those compulsive behaviors to the repressed feelings, and we can't because the repressed feelings are unconscious. Right. And so we keep doing that, and uh, if we have to function, and then there's a period in which the danger passes. And when the danger passes, we feel safe for a brief period of time because consciously, oh, we feel safe. But what's happened is depending on how much of those repressed feelings that you couldn't deal with, the intensity of them, depending on how many they are and how horrific and terrifying and fragile you felt, uh, they threaten to come through. So post-traumatic stress disorder is threatening what Sigmund Freud had a term called the return of the repressed. And, you know, and he did stuff like studying dreams because in our dreams, what is repressed comes up. So a number of the symptoms of PTSD are nightmares, flashbacks, uh, something called hypervigilance, because you're afraid if you lower your guard, all that repressed stuff is going to come up and take you down. So if something like a monster, so to speak, shows up in your dream, the monster is actually some sort of a represent, symbolic representation of the, the repressed material that's bubbling its way up and trying to process? Is that uh, essentially what you're, what you're getting to? Well, the dream is... it's. It's translating the repressed things into your dreams, and the nightmare is is not so much processing because it's a nightmare. It's it's a re-experiencing of the horrific and the terrorizing. Ah, okay. So the suppression leads to repression, which leads to symptoms, which leads to the compulsivity. Is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And so, in, in fact. Even though I wrote PTSD for dummies, I've been trying to change the diagnosis of PTSD to what people actually live, which is what I call RTA. And RTA stands for re-traumatization avoidance. 
and what that means is if you ask someone who's been through an awful trauma, and you'll be able to ask, sadly, these first responders, healthcare workers whose colleague died from it, sacrificing themselves. If you say to people months from now or years from now who have PTSD, if you look them in the eye and you say, God, you're so courageous. Good for you that you got over it. They'll look at you and they'll say, I didn't get over it. I got past it. And if you say, what do you mean? They'll say, I'm not the same. I don't relax much. Uh, I don't feel peace. I feel exhaustion. I have some fun, but I don't feel joy. And then if you ask them, do you think you could go through it again? Many of those people will say, absolutely not. I don't know how I survived it the first time, but I don't think I could do it again. So when I've shared that with people with traumas and what's been called PTS now, they'll say, oh my God, that's my life. That's what I'm living. I live my life avoiding re-traumatization. And the re-traumatization is avoiding the re-feeling of the feelings you never got to finish feeling. And, and this, if I could just for a moment, Mark, the, the traumatization, the PTSD, when you're talking about these psychological terms or principles of suppression, repression, things like that, um, these are actually attempts, in a sense, they're, they're, they're attempts to, in a sense, they have a positive side to them. I mean, it's to get you through. It is to survive. Is that right? But yeah. they, it, it is, in a sense, they're, they're survival mechanisms. One of the things that I have been thinking about, in addition to what you're saying, is that for every frontline responder, for every essential worker like that who is experiencing some of this the trauma and PTSD, they have family and they have friends who they interact with. And there is also uh, displacement. And so it's possible that they could end up bringing their stuff home, so to speak. And now you create a further complication in the family structure or in the net network of friend structure. Is that right? Yeah, it, the, exactly. It, it's exactly true what you said. You know, it's like secondhand smoke. It's like, also, you know, when you're around anxious people, they make you anxious. You know, uh, now you say, what's wrong? Are you okay? But people's anxiety makes us anxiety. Uh, people's depression uh, threatens to uh, make us depressed and often we'll become anxious around depressed people because we don't want to be brought down. We don't want to drown with them in their depression. So you're exactly right. And what happens is when they come home, uh, they're trying to control it from coming up from inside. But one of the ways they do it is they socially withdraw. They, they're trying to lower the stimulus everywhere. And there's an observation that a friend of mine who had the trauma of his 14-year-old son dying by suicide two years ago, he said, you know, when you ask people how they're doing, and you get a sense they're like a teenager or someone who's having a rough time, and they say, great, they're usually good. But if you say to them, 
uh, how are you doing? And they say, I'm fine. They're usually not. Uh -huh. They're often saying is, I'm fine. Leave me alone. I don't want to talk about it. And what it is, is that they're trying to keep the stimulus from the outside down because they're trying to manage all the stuff that wants to bubble up from inside. So they try to shut down uh, and, and they're kind of betwixt and between. And so now you're asking, now if you're being anxious and worried and you're asking them and you're pestering them, <coughs> excuse me, and you're pestering them, they're feeling pressured by that. And you are pressuring them because they're worrying you. So you may think, oh, I'm not anxious, I'm just worried. But your anxious anxiety as the family member can be pressure on them from the outside while they're trying to keep what's pressing up from inside them, you know, from ripping them apart. Well, now you actually, it leads to, uh, I want to give people some tips because people probably heard enough of what I've said to say, so what do we do? Can you make, well, actually, can you go back just to, just to, for a moment and make a distinction or remake a distinction, if you will, there is fear and there is anxiety and they're not the same. So can you say what the difference is between fear and anxiety? Well, specifically? Yeah, fear usually has sort of a focus. And in fact, uh, uh, anxiety doesn't seem to have a focus. And so it's a little bit invisible. And to a certain extent, when people say, the coronavirus is invisible. Yeah, that, that causes fear, but it also causes anxiety because we don't know where it is. Right, it has no, lo it has no location. That's right. And, uh, and when I talked about the, the trifecta of horror, terror, fragile, um, and then you want to shut it down, what, uh, what can happen with anxiety is it can become what's called free-floating anxiety. And free-floating anxiety feels like at any moment it can cause you to panic. It's just floating around in there and you, and, and it's, you can't get rid of it. And so what will happen is we will focus our free-floating anxiety on something because, and then we convert it to fear and then we say, well, all we have to do is avoid that thing that we're afraid of. But that also can keep us focused on the wrong thing. So what happens is uh, we're feeling anxious from an invisible enemy. Our anxiety becomes free-floating anxiety. If we become panic, we're going to freeze. So in order to avoid the free-floating part of it, we will attribute it to something and say, uh, oh, I have reason to be afraid. I think that person uh, may have COVID. Uh, okay. Well, now that we have like this distinction between fear and anxiety, how do you recommend or what do you recommend how you deal with your own fear? Meaning like for each of us who are listening, say me, the listeners, how do they deal with their fear and their anxiety? Well, I remember one of my clients years ago, uh, she came in because she had a, a, a very well-known, beloved dad that the world loved. And she was very close to him. And she didn't think she could deal with it. 
what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then she came in one day and she gave me one of the most eloquent quotes I've ever heard. It's in the top five. And this, if you're listening in, this applies to you. What it comes down to is living with life never being the same again. Living with life never being the same again. You know, after 9-11, life was never the same again, but we learned to live with it. If you've had cancer, life is never the same again, but you learn to live with it. Uh, if you've gone bankrupt, life is never the same again if you've gotten divorced. And so what I would suggest to people is uh, uh, remember times that you never thought you'd get through any time in your life and try to remember it as clearly as possible and have it framed with, I never thought I'd get through that. And then remember it as clearly as possible because the way you're positioning it is you did get through it. Maybe you never thought you'd get through a divorce, but now you're really happily married. Maybe you thought, geez, I, I'd never get through cancer, but the cancer either became cured or went into remission and you're taking much better care of yourself. But what you want to do is reframe the coronavirus pandemic as uh, yet another thing that in the moment you say, how am I going to get through it? What's going to happen? Am I going to have a job? Uh, what's going to happen to me? How am I going to take care of things? All those things are scary and overwhelming. Uh, but if you can imagine, and this is what I might do as a therapist, you know, I'd hear people out and I would say, tell me about a time that you never thought you'd get through, but you did. And as, uh, as I draw that out of people, it's what they're doing is they're reliving similar times in their life that they got through that, uh, that they never thought they would. And then what you, what you can ask yourself is, um, what enabled me to get through? And you can remember, um, uh, I'm very big on uh, showing gratitude to people who are there for you. Yeah. There's something about remembering people who really helped you get through. There's something about feeling gratitude towards that person, whether they're alive or dead, feeling gratitude. And I think why that helps is because something else that I talk about frequently is the extinction of something called oxytocin in society. And so when you're feeling grateful that someone helped you and you're remembering how they helped you, you're remembering how they cared about you, you summon up oxytocin in you. And oxytocin is a hormone re related to relating. It's something that young mothers have that causes them to bond to their screaming kids instead of, you know, wanting to shake them. And what a lot of people don't know, and many of your listeners don't know, you can look it up, is oxytocin counteracts high cortisol. And high cortisol is a hormone that is released when you're under stress. And when cortisol goes up, it kind of triggers a part of your brain called the amygdala. And your amygdala is kind of like the emotional point guard in your brain. And when it gets over agitated by too much cortisol, what happens is it 
causes blood flow to go preferentially to your lower brain, which is your survival brain. So you engage in fight, flight, or freeze. And what happens is the blood goes there instead of to your prefrontal cortex. So when we talk about a deer in the headlights, uh, that's exactly what's happening, is a deer in the headlights cannot think because they're just thinking about how to survive. And if they're feeling cornered, like many people who are in quarantine are feeling, they just freeze. And so high oxytocin counterbalances uh, high cortisol. And, and I'll give people a tip that they can use. Um, in fact, if I was seeing you, if you're a listener or a viewer, and I see that you're caught up in this cortisol, amygdala, amygdala hijack agitation, uh, I might say something, and this is called mediated catharsis, which means it's reverse psychology. And I might say uh, to someone like you, I might say, Robert, or you can say this to that person in your family who says, I'm fine, leave me alone. You say to them, uh, say this to me. What? Just say this to me and try to feel it. And then you look them in the eye and you say, say this to me. Would you get off my effing back? I don't want to talk about it. I told you it wouldn't make it any better. Just leave me the F alone. Could you say that to me and try to feel it? So what you're doing is you're giving them words to say that get the feelings up and out. And you don't get defensive because you're the one guiding the conversation. Right, right. Whereas if they just, if they said, leave me alone, uh, get off my back, and if you weren't guiding the conversation, you go, now calm down, it's gonna be okay, now calm down, okay. you know, it, it'll be all right. It was just frustrates them. I told you not to try to talk to me. Why do we, why do you do this? And so if they were to do, say those things spontaneously, it would trigger high cortisol in you, the supportive family member, and then you'd have an amygdala hijack. Now calm down, calm down. But when you get them to say the words, and you watch it, and when they say it, you're hearing it. And you might even say, uh, and say this to me, uh, I don't think it's gonna get any better. I don't think I'm ever gonna find a job. Uh, I don't think we're gonna get through this. Just say that to me, and so they're saying it. Now some people will say, won't that make them feel worse? No, no, what's happening is since you're inviting them to in a sense punch themselves out, they're actually going to feel better and you're not going to get defensive and shut them down. And then what you can say after you keep draining this abscess that wants to burst, what you can say, and they may just start to cry with relief is, you know, a lot of people are feeling that. In fact, there's so many people that are feeling that even if the government or the world hasn't figured out what to do, Civilization, the world's going to survive. And there's so many people feeling the exact same thing. And because there's so many of them, something will be figured out. And, uh, and I know it's hard to be patient, but we all feel the same way. In fact, I feel the same way. And I'm glad you told me that. But can you see how that invites 
a kind of empathic conversation. Sure. Yeah, that sounds like that's a. I mean, that's really helpful. It's a step by step, and it's a. It's like a very powerful and authentic series of reframes, where you know, at the end there, the person is no longer isolated and alone in their experience. They now have been. They, you've informed them that they're not alone, which is the true, which is the fact. They're not alone. There are others just like them who are having the experience, and it's okay. And like you said, and they will get through it. You know, it's it's interesting how, for me, I found a couple of reframes that were really helpful that seemed to be in alignment with what you're saying, and that is that I remember reading in science about quantum physics and that below the molecular down to the atomic level, everything is changing all the time. Every single second, everything is changing. But because we have these five senses that tend to observe things and make them solid, so to speak. Those are part of the limitation of our senses. Um, I, I really like this statement, and it was, things are not, what is it? Change is thinging. And I like that because it stopped me in my tracks, and it made me go, what? And I had to think about it. And what it meant was that things are not changing. The actual, the primary state of all things around us is, is change because it's energy that's constantly changing all the time. Even if you're looking at a solid object, it's changing in every second because of, of what it's made of. So it's an interesting reframe for me from the place of, of science. And then there is an interesting correspondence in, in the, the world's different religion, like in Buddhism, where it talks about impermanence, that uh, impermanence, things are not permanent, things do change. And if one can sort of practice taking on that belief, it allows for the acceptance of change uh, during the course of one's life much more easily and uh, readily. Would you, do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, you, uh, you, you just, you just uh, reminded me of something, and this is a slightly you know, different audience, um, uh, but I recently uh, did a presentation or webinar to a group of entrepreneurs. And um, and there was one entrepreneur who stood out. It was a young woman, and you could tell that she was going to thrive. And it, there's a good chance that the other people would make it through. And it was interesting. <laughs> I said to the group, I said, uh, it's clear that you're all admiring this young woman, um, how would you like me to tell you, break down how, how to think like her? Uh -huh. she, she thinks like a Steve Jobs. She thinks like an Elon Musk. And she thinks differently than the rest of you. Uh, so they all wanted that. And I said, what she has is she sees the unknown as an adventure she wants to undertake as opposed to something that's going to bring her down. And I said, what she has is she, um, she has a joy of discovery. She likes the unknown. And she also has a quality that a late mentor of mine, a fellow named Warren Bennis, uh, which he lifted from a playwright named Saul Bellow. And I said, she's a first-class noticer. 
and noticing is different than looking, watching. When you look, watch, and see, you're an observer. And so what happens is as the unknown comes towards her, she notices possibilities. She right. doesn't try to stuff it into the company that she has or how are we going to sell our inventory? What happens is she just notices things. And so if you can see the unknown as uh, revealing things to you, if you care to notice them. So, so for instance, uh, if you're like something you may notice, and I was actually interviewed about this, and I have, a, I have a podcast called My Wake Up Call, and a lot of people are having wake up calls while they're in quarantine. And I was interviewed about how do you stay awake after the pandemic? Because some people are waking up to things that are important to them that they'd forgotten about. You know, maybe relationships, maybe, maybe connecting with people as opposed to let's just keep busy, let's just keep busy, let's just, let's just keep running. And, uh, and I was interviewed by someone who said, how do you stay awake? What if you're noticing some important things? What if you're noticing a way to connect with your partner, your friends, or your kids? Uh, how do you keep that going and not just slip back to hyperactivity as a way of just keeping yourself distracted? And so actually uh, on that podcast, what we came up with was the buddy system. You know, many of us, when we learned to swim, had the buddy system. You know, someone would watch after you and you'd watch after them. And so what we came up with is reach out to someone, a friend uh, who's not totally overly anxious, but reach out to people who you think might have discovered something important to them that they want to keep going. And say to them, you know, I'd like your help with something. I've discovered a couple things that are really good for me, and I just didn't take the time or make the time to do it. And I don't want to drop the ball. Have you discovered anything? Because if you had, can we talk to each other every couple of weeks and just kind of support each other, hold each other accountable, be supportive, you know, not, not lay a guilt trip on people. But I don't want to drop the ball on what I've discovered is important. But that's an example of noticing something that in your overly busy, frenetic life, you never notice. Well, you know, one of the things that, that I have learned to do, and I, I, again, I agree with you, I think that's, that's really nice, is that um, when it comes to this sort of material coming up, like the PTSD material that we've sort of uh, suppressed and repressed and it starts to manifest, one way of thinking about it is, is as a kind of um, like a, some shadow material, like psychological shadow. And um, there's a really simple practice that, that someone can take up, like, what is it that's, quote, bothering you? Figure out what that is. Is it an it, right? Is it, is it a thing? I don't like this. I don't like that. Is it, a, is it a person or a group, that kind of thing? What is it that's bothering you? As Take that as your topic or theme and get yourself a piece of paper or a journal and a pen or pencil and start writing about it, but start in the third person, then rewrite it in the second person, then rewrite it in the third per first person. So it goes from 
and I think this actually, and you may correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is actually from Freud where he said, where there is, it's something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's um, something like where there is it becomes I. And what he's essentially saying is that these parts of ourselves that we have displaced onto the other side of the, the self boundary, that we can reintegrate them, we can accept them non-judgmentally and become more whole if we will do something like this, uh, this journaling that I mentioned. It's, there are many ways to do it, but this is just another one of them. And so, for example, let's say this bothers me and it's, it is an it. So I write about it that bothers me in this, from that perspective. And then to allow it to get a little closer, I can change it to this, you bother me. You bother me about this, that, or the other. And then you rewrite it at a third time from I, which is I bother myself or I create bother within myself or I allow myself to get bothered by this particular quality, which is in me, or this worry, concern, anxiety, whatever it may be. And in so doing, you begin to allow it to come into your awareness to what it's really about and accept it about yourself and without judgment. And there can be a kind of uh, forgiveness and appreciation and gratitude for all that you are. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because of, there was something I used to feel less about myself about, which is um, insight never really seemed to help me. I mean, it give me an understanding because at my core, I'm not an I, I'm a we. At my core, I probably feel alone, lonely, and, and I, I want to I have a partner, and together we'll do some great stuff. Uh -huh. Together we'll also make it through some bad stuff. And so one of the things, my version of what you, uh, you're saying, uh, and also I was fortunate, more fortunate than most people I know, is very early I learned the, the value and power of mentors to not just change your life, but save your life. And, and so I've had a series of seven mentors. They've all passed away. And so one of the things that I also do, and if you're listening in, think of someone who cares about you, living or dead. And they believed in you when you didn't. Uh, and they saw a future for you when you didn't. Uh, or you, you can take someone that inspires you from a book. You, you could read a, a book from Mother Teresa and just feel so inspired. Or you can watch Pope Francis. I mean, you can feel, you know, this guy really believes in all of us. And what I would do, uh, which helps, is I will imagine one of those deceased mentors. And, uh, and there's a process called the five reallys. The five reallys? Like R-E-A-L-L-Y? Yeah. And the five reallys goes like this. So I'm upset about something. And usually I don't get upset with other people. I get upset with myself. I mean, I, I got to give it a rest, but I haven't made that much progress. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you, know, you, you know, even on this podcast, I'll say, oh, you muted it. He had to edit it. Jeez, you're such a pain in the rear, Mark. So I, I, hopefully I won't overdo that. But, uh, uh, but what I will do is I will call upon one of those mentors 
And I imagine them saying to me, and we have a good relationship, even better now that they're dead. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I'll imagine calling on one of them will say, what'd you wake me for? I was RIPing. What is going on, Mark? So, uh, 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 I need to talk to you. What's going on, Mark? And it's all laced with love. And I'll tell them, oh, I did this. You know, I got another podcast with my good friend, Robert Dot Barham, and I was all over the place. Uh, and then the five realies would be, what's really going on, Mark? Well, I do a lot of podcasts, and I'm not very polished. You know, uh, uh, well, what's really going on, Mark? Um, I guess I'm still thinking that I got to be someone else to be good enough. What's really going on, Mark? Uh, you know, I'm tired of that. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm never going to be anyone else. I'm kind of stuck with myself. Uh, and it would be nice to, at some moment, feel that I'm good enough. You know, maybe I could get a night's sleep if I could just say, you know, Mark, go to sleep. You're good enough. Uh, and well, what's really going on? So, but the idea is if you can have that conversation with someone in your mind's eye, they can often uh, bring out what's really going on. Right. You know, I don't think I can, you know, they talk about the new normal. I think I'm going to fall through the cracks. Well, what's really going on? Well, if I fall through the cracks, I, I don't know if I can support my family. And well, what's really going on? Well, if it turns out that I can't do that stuff, you know, I think I could get really depressed, you know, because, you know, I, I measure myself by being able to do those things. What's really going on? I have this monkey on my back. <laughs> <laughs> and it won't leave me alone. But, but do you follow what I'm saying? It's a way to, uh, and I find that helpful because, again, I feel the oxytocin. I can imagine that person, and they're not around. I can imagine that person talking with me through it, and the five realies are a way to go through it. Now, you don't have to use the, the, me the dead mentor route that I use, but if you're following what uh, uh, Robert's saying is you can write down something, you know, what are you bothered by? And then you pause and say, what are you really bothered by? You write that down. Okay, okay, what are you really bothered by? And you can, you know, pause. And often, if you can find out what is really bothering you way down deep, you may start to feel feelings but it really won't be horror or terror. It'll be calmer. It's, it sounds like that honesty, um, no, here's the six really, is really, is really helpful. That self-honesty in a space of, with, uh, that's free from any kind of criticism or judgment. You have a freedom of expression. And whether it's, it's expressing yourself freely to an imaginary coach, mentor, that sort of thing, or whether it's expressing your, yourself freely onto the holding space, the non-judgmental holding space of a piece of paper or that kind of thing. The, the honest expression allows you to, and you said this to me one time and I really 
this is this has stayed with me you i ask you why you write and you are in my mind a pro prolific writer and you said i write to know what my mind thinks to see what i what i think about something and um one of the books because what you're talking about is while you're expressing yourself on the one hand you're also listening to yourself mm -hmm. as you write or as you speak and one of the books that you wrote is just listen and i want to ask you that that is the top book on listening in the world what when you wrote that book what were you hoping to accomplish with it um well, I looked out at the world and I saw that people weren't listening to each other and people were frustrating each other. I saw that there was a hunger to be listened to, but there wasn't a high motivation to do the listening. And also, because I was a suicide specialist for many years, I had learned the power of causing someone to feel felt. Now feeling understood is good. It's above the neck. And that's better than feeling misunderstood or worse being judged or criticized. But when you feel felt, oxytocin just surges. When you feel felt, you feel listened to completely your whole person and what happens is when you feel felt in a non-judgmental way you lean into it in fact people collapse into it sometimes crying i remember there was a woman i was seeing years ago a, a hard driving woman and high achiever and uh and i said to her i said I think I've discovered what you're afraid of, and it's not being criticized, judged, or controlled. She looked at me like, what? I said, you don't like those things, but you know, you've had experience dealing with them. You know, you get hurt, you get angry, you get, you know, sullen, you know, you know, you know, you have some pattern to deal with it. I said, I don't think that's what you're afraid of. She looked at me like this. Yeah, so what am I afraid of? And and then I looked at her and I said, I think what you're really afraid of is feeling unconditionally safe, <laughs> loved, and there is nothing you can do to earn it, and there is nothing you can do to lose it. And she looked at me and she went, and then she just started sobbing. She, she didn't know where it was coming from. And then she even sort of collapsed on the couch and you know, she cried for a while. Uh, it was it was like an outpouring of some deep abscess. Um, and, and rather than knowing I was upsetting her, I was relieving something. And she cried. And then she got up, and her eyes were bloodshot, and she had a big smile. And she said, "You just hit a nerve that goes beyond anything I can even imagine." And she said, "You're right." She said, all my life, I've been sweeping things under the rug out of fear. And I've never felt safe. And I'm afraid that if I could really feel unconditionally safe and loved, that the pain of a lifetime 
would just start draining and draining and draining and draining. And uh, I know intellectually it could maybe help me heal, but there's so much of it. I have this fear that it would just wash me away because there's just so much of it. It's all I've ever known. So I don't know if that gives you sort of a sense of the power of feeling felt. So, the, the, and so I wrote Just Listen because that I, I, we can heal each other if we listen into people with no judgment, with no agenda, with total safety. And I am telling you, people collapse into it. And, and we, yeah. It sounds like like you're talking about a kind of listening that's like a heartfelt listening, like a genuine heartfelt listening. And that's, you know, uh, we talked a little bit about the, about the Institute of Heart Math and their work. And I'm not sure if most people know this, but when one is really in that, that heartfelt space, there is a field, an electromagnetic field that your body generates. And that field is very, very, the term is uh, coherent. And mm -hmm. if you were to look at it on a, on a computer, it would look something kind of like a sine wave, like a, like a series of hills and valleys that's very smooth and flowing. When someone is in a lot of fear and anxiety, that graph would look a lot more like a jagged sort of stock market up and down, you know, jagged line like that. And that's called being very incoherent. And when someone sits in that space of, of kind of unconditional listening, that heartfelt listening that sounds like what you're talking about, there's a silence there that is, that is tangible and palpable. And it's like a holding space for that person is how it, it seems to me sometimes. And certainly in talking with you and the many conversations we've had, that's how it, it can occur to me. And I'm reminded of, like, I think one of the most powerful scenes in a film um, that I've ever, ever come across. It's such a sweet example of the kind of listening that happens in silence and that non-judgmental silence. Do you remember the film uh, Little Miss Sunshine where the little girl wants to be part of the, the beauty pageant for, for young girls and they decide to pile into the, to the van and drive out to the, to the, to the competition and um, she's this adorable young girl and she has an older brother and he is maintaining this silence but he finds out along the drive that because he's colorblind that he will never be able to be a fighter pilot. And um, so I think his name is Dwayne. He has a meltdown and starts screaming and yelling and pounding the inside of the van. And they are asking, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And he's just screaming and yelling and not answering. So they pull the van over, slide the, it's a VW van and they, they slide the door open. He gets out and he runs, they pull over on the side of the road. He runs down this um, ravine sort of into a valley, which I think is a, a nice visual metaphor too. And he screams at the top of his lungs, just a, just ah, like that. And then he uh, plops himself down on the dirt and sits there. And um, the parents try to talk to him without any success. And, uh, and then I think her name, the, the young girl's name is Alice, I think. 
Um, I, I could be wrong. Anyway, what she does is she trots down the hill and she has her pig, her little pigtails, her ponytails, and she sits down next to her brother and she she's several years younger than him and she places her arm around her brother and she doesn't say a word. She says absolutely nothing. She doesn't say it's going to be okay. It's how are you doing? Anything like that at all. She just sits there and is totally and completely with him where he's out at. And, um, there is this communication that occurs totally non-verbally, and he finally says, okay, I'm ready to go now. And then the two of them get up, and they move back up to the van, and they move on their way. But that one scene really encapsulated to me the power of heartfelt and non-judgmental listening. And think, yeah, and your book has, is, I read your book, uh, several years ago and it has some wonderful information in there and advice and tools and techniques. It, it's, it's filled with that kind of stuff. It's an excellent book. And so I, I, I thank you for it. I want to know, Mark, um, you have wake up calls is a show that you have. It's one of your podcasts. Um, you're talking with people about their wake up calls. Is there something that you've really discovered that is most important about you that you could share uh, that you, that you haven't already shared your listeners. I just feel like I've shared this story so many times. I'm almost done with it. Um, I dropped out of medical school twice and I think I had untreated depression or not treated well or whatever. And I was passing everything and miraculously and the second time I dropped out the medical school wanted to kick me out um, in fact I met with the dean of the school who's about finances and I can understand it from his point of view this guy dropped out once he comes back and he's dropping out again let's cut our losses we're losing money on him I can understand that and so I met with him and I don't remember the meeting and in retrospect and for a while I held a grudge against him but I realized uh, he probably, he sent me over to the Dean of Students who cares about people, the students. And he was probably thinking, yeah, let's cut our losses, but I don't want him to kill himself. So he referred me to the Dean of Students. That's probably my first mentor because the Dean of Students basically was the one who told me the medical school is asking you to withdraw, which is a euphemism of, uh, you know, they, they, they want to kick you out. They want to cut their losses. And he said it in that holding space like a character in Little Miss Sunshine. And I, it just hit me like a, it's almost like a gunshot wound to the gut. And I started to just cry. And it was just raw. And he said, you know, um, you didn't mess up, but you are messed up. But if you got unmessed up, I think the school would be glad they gave you a second chance because you have something in you that we don't grade in medical school that we should. And what you have in you is very important. 
and the world needs it more than you know, and you won't know how much they need it until you're 35, but you have to make it till you're 35. And I was just sobbing. It was, un it was unconditional safety because if I, at that point I felt like I couldn't do anything. So it was pretty unconditional. And he said, you know, uh, even, if you, uh, uh, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do another thing the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you because you, you have this goodness that the world needs. And, uh, and I'm just sobbing. And he said, you deserve to be on this planet and you're gonna let me help you. So he went to bat for me against the medical school. He stood up to the head of the school and so I think the idea that someone would reach in when you feel like you're worth nothing and they would see a future for you, would see that the world might value you and then go to bat for you at their own expense, it was, uh, it flipped a switch in me. So I think part of my being a suicide specialist was I was just paying it forward. I would see the good in people and not give up on them. Um, well, maybe come up with solutions, but I would try to keep them company in the dark night of the soul, like that character didn't rule Miss Sunshine. So I think that was the wake-up call for me, and it, it probably, well, probably, it changed the whole arc of my life. Mark, thank you very much for being here today. I really appreciate it. My guess is that um, you are, well, I know you're a best-selling author. My guess is that you're probably working on some, another book or two right now. But if, uh, if someone wants to get in touch with you, um, you're available in a number of different places on the web. Like, for example, if someone wants to watch that video documentary on suicide and suicide prevention, they can find that. Where can they find that again? Okay, so yeah, so I was a co-creator and moderator of a documentary called Stay Alive, an intimate conversation about suicide prevention. And it, uh, it's, oh, it's 70 minutes and I interviewed Kevin Hines who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived and a young Japanese pop singer, Reiko, who is an advocate for suicide prevention. So you can go to Stay Alive video and see it for free. Okay, and if, if someone... Uh if someone uh, wants to reach out to you on the web somewhere or online, what are some of the places they can reach you? I know that, for example, if they go to Amazon, they can actually find your books there, but where else can they go to find out and keep up with you? Well, the best thing is markgoulston.com, G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N.com. So um, uh, I've redone that website, so rather than hiding from it because it was an eyesore before, <laughs> actually i think okay and uh and i write frequently if i uh, uh when this goes up uh i'll put that up on my website so if you go to markgoulston.com you can find a lot about me and there's also if you click on the uh, contact uh click in the menu uh, it'll send me you know a, a message from you now I, I need to say i don't directly do suicide prevention work one-on-one -on -one with people. I'm a retired doctor, which means you know, I'm not currently 
licensed, I'm licensed, but not, not to treat people. But that said, uh, I will work with groups of parents and counselors and therapists because I know a little bit about, you know, getting through to people. Uh, actually, a, someone who reached out to me, a fellow named Jason Reed, I mentioned him and his son, he was on something called Goldcast, and Goldcast has these short videos, and they have millions of views. Uh, his Goldcast video has, I think, seven and a half million views. But he created a video. If you look uh, up teen mental health during quarantine on YouTube, teen mental health during quarantine, uh, and, and you'll see you know, a title that looks like that. So what Jay did is he put up his Goldcast uh, nine or 10 minute video where he spoke to entrepreneurs about how he blew it with his son. And then for about 25, 30 minutes, I'm speaking about how do you get through to your, uh, to your, uh, to your family member. So they can find me there. Excellent. Mark, thank you so much for being here today. This was really an enjoyable conversation with you. And I hope that you'll come back again. And uh, for all those listeners out there, Please uh, check Mark Goulston out um, because he has got a lot more to say. And you have been listening to another episode of the Robert Barham Show. I'm Robert Barham. Today we were here with Mark Goulston, and you'll be able to find us on Fairfax Public Access Radio Fairfax at www.fcac.org. We will meet again.